On a summer night in 1979, the lives of six teenagers collided, and one was left dead. What followed was a 17-month investigation, an escape from an inescapable prison, and a search for justice by two families, the victims and the murderers. Join me. You may be able to help solve a mystery. Welcome to You Solved a Mystery, a podcast where I get angry about the prison industrial complex. And I enjoy watching her get angry. But actually, it's a podcast where we delve into segments of the iconic show Unsolved Mysteries and reveal the final chapter. I'm Athena. And I'm Chandra. And today we're joined by a very special and spicy guest, Bug Bagheera. He's a kitten. A spicy little kitten who is absolutely adorable, but also enjoys chewing on fingers a little too much. He's the perfect combination of sweet and spicy, this one. All he wants to do is chew on your knuckles, but you can't You can't send him away. You just look at his little face, and what can you do? Should we just do a podcast trying to get our fosters adopted? It'd be like a kitten blind date. We could do a dating podcast where you pick a kitten based off its personality, and then you meet it. Bagheera is a 10-week-old Russian blue who was brought to a local shelter at some days old. He now is a grown-up healthy boy. Very fluffy. Great purr. He loves going out to dinner. Sweet eyes. He loves long walks on the beach. I'm distracted now. I'm distracted by the kitten. This might not work. So today's episode originally aired on November 16th, 1988, and was reincorporated into Season 1, Episode 8 on YouTube. As one of the country's most secure maximum security prisons, few cameras had been allowed inside the walls of San Quentin. So the Unsolved Mystery segment boasts about being allowed in, quote, so we might document one of the few times the system failed and help recapture an escaped prisoner, I would just like to say the system fails all the damn time. Yeah. Wasn't necessarily Unsolved Mysteries' viewpoint, but yeah. Despite 25-foot walls lined with barbed wire and 21 armed guard towers, in 1986, 23-year-old Mark Adams had escaped. Adams' ordeal began on August 17, 1979. Three friends, 16-year-old Michael Ridenauer, 17-year-old Brian Garcia, and 18-year-old Kirk Davis went to the baseball dugout at Downey Park to drink beer and chat about school and friends. Hooligans. I'm just kidding. They're just kids having fun. It sounds like such a classic. They were drinking beer, which you're not supposed to do as a teen, but it sounds wholesome. Hanging out in a park dugout late at night drinking beer with your friends. I want to hang out in a park dug out with my friends and drink some beer. Sounds like the life. I just need friends. Just being kids. (laughs) (laughs) Although originally from Modesto, California, Michael's family had moved to Carpinteria and were in town visiting family over the summer vacation. Hey, I know Carpinteria. Yeah. I've been there. Kirk Davis had accompanied Michael on the trip because they were friends at school. Carpinteria High School, as in the neighboring school to ours in Santa Barbara County that we wrestled against and had tournaments at and watched football games against. Isn't that trippy? That's a... I was going to say it's a fun little worlds collide, but I don't know if anything about this story is fun. (laughs) Yeah, but you can kind of imagine part of it just because you've been there. I can definitely see the outside of the gym. (laughs) Michael and Kirk were on the junior varsity football team hoping to try out for varsity when school started in September. Around 11.30 that night, three young men wearing ski masks approached them. One carried a rifle, which Kirk would later say he thought was a pellet gun due to its small barrel. The three interlopers demanded the boys' wallets. They told them they didn't have any money and offered them beer instead, which is very hospitable. It is. What nice kids. Yeah, the reenactment was not great. No, it was very awkward. No, it looked like... It made it look like one of the teens was doing some kind of aggression display. Uh Uh-huh. Like a gorilla. Yeah. 
And then the way that they had the shooter just stop and stare for a while. It was awkward. It was weird. It definitely wasn't some kids offering some robbers a beer. Yeah. And from what I can tell from newspapers, what happened was that Michael eventually stood up and said, quote, get out of here. We don't want any trouble. End quote. And the one with the rifle immediately opened fire. He barely got his words out. And he showered them in a hail of almost 20 bullets from the small caliber gun. That is some serious aggression. Yeah. Like at that point, they've, they've said they don't have anything. Maybe they're lying. I don't know. But they're teenagers. If they've got wallets on them, you're probably going to find like a $5 bill and a condom. Yeah. And we'll, we'll kind of get there. Um, it's definitely excessive. <laughs> it's just killing them for the sake of killing them. Killing them because he's irritated or just an unhappy person in general. I don't know why. Just to play the devil's advocate, Michael stood up and it could have been an element of being startled by him standing. And that's not at all to say that Michael was being aggressive or anything. I think more it was him just kind of casually standing up and being like, hey, we're just here hanging out. Get out of here. Because as we'll get to, the other two were already running away at that point. A single bullet hit Michael in the forehead, killing him instantly. Did he really open up a spray of bullets, like in the yeah. reenactment? Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, you could do that with a twenty-two. It wasn't a twenty-two. Wait, what was it? It was a Colt AR-15 .223 caliber semi-automatic rifle. Okay. Well, I don't know much about that, but it's definitely quite different from a twenty-two. Yeah, I don't know much about guns, but I looked it up, and that is... Not a joke. And it does have a slim barrel, but it's not a phony. Kind of just makes it more bizarre why these teens are walking around with such an intense weapon and then try to rob some other teenagers. Yeah, what we find out is that they were the same age as Michael, Kirk, and Brian. It's kind of shocking. Kirk and Brian booked it as soon as he started shooting. And Steve was hit twice in the leg in the left side, but Kirk got away unharmed. A couple days later, Brian was reported as being in satisfactory condition. Satisfactory isn't great. Yeah. It's like, what does that mean? <laughs> there had been at least four other holdups by these same mass individuals against eight different teenagers. They would prowl the local parks at night, but no other victims had been injured. And the most money they'd taken from any victim had been $60. Here we are again. The most they ever got out of this robbery spree is $60. Mm -hmm. And they've got a weapon that's got to be at least twice that much. I don't know much about gun pricing, but it had to be at least twice $60. I, I, have, I literally have no idea. $120 <laughs> seems low. I was just thinking it's a really intense gun for holding up teenagers in a park. And the sad thing is that Michael had $6 in his wallet. It's nothing. Even if he was walking around with 20000 cash. Still didn't deserve to be shot. <laughs> Still shouldn't have happened. <laughs> Witnesses saw the three robbers run out of the park and escape in a 1970 or 1971 El Camino pickup. Something I read in articles was that, like, the pickup was parked on Carnation Court and they sped away down Lavender Lane. And I was oh, like, I love these That's the names. kind of neighborhood this is? I would think I'd be safe in the park at 1132. I want to live on Lavender Lane. Right? Well, I guess I don't if there are teenagers robbing people with a okay, Colt's AK-15 something something. Not quite, but that's fine. <laughs> Also, it was 1979, so we don't have to worry about these people in particular. After his death, Michael's family asked for remembrances to go to the Carpinteria Warriors Booster Club, which is now called the Carpinteria High School Booster Club, which is a nonprofit that supports the development of Carpinteria athletes by raising funds at their Avocado Festival booth. I love the Avocado Festival. If you don't know, there's an avocado festival held every year in Santa Barbara County where people bring all kinds of avocado-related products. The sort of infamous slash famous, because nobody hates it, is the avocado ice cream, which personally I've never actually had. I had it, and while I felt kind of weird about it, I actually enjoyed it. 
It was much better than the durian ice cream I tried. That tasted <laughs> like an onion. And after they raise funds at their avocado festival booth, they donate scholarships to athletes through the Scholarship Foundation of Santa Barbara, from which I believe we both receive scholarships for college. <laughs> yeah. You would hope that the the stories that made you reminisce about your own your old stomping grounds wouldn't be related to murder, but here we are. It's just more of a connection to home that makes you think, like, I walked the same ground as these people, and what else don't I know about my hometown? When I worked at a pet store one time, a co-worker had to leave because his brother had been attacked with a machete. Yeah, I remember that. Yep, that's the kind of thing that is strange to learn about your hometown. That kind of thing goes on. I didn't expect it. <laughs> Do you think that kind of thing just goes on everywhere? And you just don't know until you know. Yeah, probably. <laughs> but that just kind of makes the world more terrifying. I'm just walking around everywhere thinking at any point I could be attacked with a machete. That is a terrifying thought. <laughs> I'm going to start walking around with my own machete. I don't remember why this came up, but maybe it was because a coworker was talking about an, an injury to her leg she got one time. And I started to think about the Achilles tendon and... Like, if it gets cut, you're, you can't use your foot. And I had this idea that I have not brought to you yet. Chainmail cuffs for ankles. To protect the Achilles tendon, just in case someone's hiding under your car to kidnap you and wants to slash your tendon. Or in case you've got some monsters under your bed. Yeah. There's all kinds of reasons for an ankle chainmail protective cuff. So I'm bringing this idea to you. To make, for me, I can see a lot of demand for that item. Yeah. A lot of people with really unreasonable anxiety, just like us, could get a lot of use out of it. And they can be stylish, too. Who doesn't want jangly chainmail in rainbow colors? What is an ankle bracelet if not jangly <laughs> chainmail in rainbow colors? <laughs> We're going to make that happen. Patent pending. In September, the Modesto B Secret Witness Program offered a reward of $5,000 for information leading to the arrest of the killer. But it was over a year before any tip panned out. Finally, 17 months after Michael's death, a tip to the Secret Witness Program paid off. After the shooting, Witnesses had seen the assailants run and escape in an El Camino pickup truck. And according to Unsolved Mysteries, it was this car that led investigators to the robbers. On January 30th, 1981, two teenagers were arrested for the robbery and murder. Jacob J. Kramer, 18, was arrested at his parents' house and booked into Juvenile Hall. Although police refused to name the second individual because he was a juvenile, sources were able to identify him as Mark Adams, age 17. He was arrested in Fayetteville, North Carolina, where he was serving in the Army at Fort Bragg. Kramer and Adams were both held without bail on suspicion of murder, attempted murder, and attempted robbery. Not long after that, the third robber, 19-year-old Terry Hanna, was apprehended. He was granted immunity for testifying against Adams, and in exchange for his testimony, the Modesto police rented a house for him and his mother and paid all of the rent, utilities, and grocery bills for over seven months. And they arranged for a drunk driving charge to be reduced to malicious mischief because he already had a driving while intoxicated conviction and the new one would have suspended his license. Snitches get set. On the cop's dime. Apparently. Detective Sergeant Dennis Puthuff explained that they wanted to keep Hannah homebound and away from other defendants, so he couldn't work, which meant he didn't have any money, and so that's why they paid the cost, and he said that the witness protection program would reimburse the city, and that the DWI charge was lowered so the city wouldn't have to pay the fine, but, or you could just make him be accountable like anybody else who couldn't pay, who would just be sent to jail. <laughs> because the criminal justice system is only for poor people. <laughs> Something about the special treatment bothers me. I don't know. Maybe I just don't like snitches. <laughs> <laughs> A 
Adams and Kramer, meanwhile, were facing one count murder, three counts of robbery, two counts of attempted murder, and five counts for robbery from the other holdups. Hannah testified that they went to the park with the intention of robbing someone, and one newspaper wrote that he had said it was just for kicks. So, possibly the amount that they got didn't even matter to them. He said that Adams had his AR-15 .223 caliber rifle while the others were unarmed. When Michael Bryan and Kirk said they didn't have any cash, Hannah claimed that he said, these guys are cool, we should just leave them, and that he and Kramer were already running away when they heard the shots being fired. He said that they were about 50 yards when they turned and saw the flashes of bullets coming from the gun. Back in their pickup, they asked Adams if he'd really shot them, and he said he'd just fired over their heads. For his part, Kramer pled guilty to three counts of attempted robbery for Downey Park and to the five charges from the previous robberies and agreed to testify against Adams so that the murder and attempted murder charges would be dropped, more or less supporting Hannah's version of events. He was sentenced to eight years and eight months in prison. To be honest, I don't know why he got time and Hannah didn't when he also testified against Adams, but... It's the prisoner's dilemma. The first person to snitch gets all the benefits. A friend of Adams, Michael Davies, testified that Adams had given him the money to buy the rifle for him. So Adams had paid for and was in possession of the rifle. The prosecutor argued that Adams was, quote, acting out of fantasy, playing army, end quote, because he had expressed a desire to join the military, which he ultimately did. Prosecution also alleged that Adams had a prior record that included malicious mischief, trespass, burglary, possession of a sawed-off shotgun, and marijuana, but his attorney said that that was an error because it was a different Mark Adams that had committed those crimes. That's a pretty big error. I really hope they got that figured out. (laughs) Somebody really needs to check on that situation. When the prosecution alleged these claims, Adams' mother actually stood up and screamed out, that's a lie, and got admonished by the judge. His defense attorney maintained that Adams was innocent and that he didn't match the description of the shooter, stating that there were discrepancies in descriptions of the perpetrators and who was actually armed, and that prosecution had, quote, bought and paid for the testimony of its accomplices. I mean, they kind of did. They kind of did. That's kind of what a deal is. On June 3rd, 1982, Mark Adams was found guilty and sentenced to 43 to life in prison with the possibility of parole. Now, just 19 years old, Adams was sent to the notorious maximum security San Quentin prison, located in the San Francisco Bay. It boasted 25-foot walls lined with barbed wire, 21 armed guard towers, and catwalks where armed guards would pace, watching for any sign of unrest. It was different from almost any other facility due to those catwalks and the presence of armed guards inside the prison. San Quentin was actually built on prime real estate waterfront property, which is delightful to me because property developers just drool over the 20 acres of untouchable land. And I like that a prison ruins something for capitalism. (laughs) At the time, San Quentin was home to over 3,000 prisoners, where the worst of the worst and repeat offenders were crammed into four and a half foot by ten and a half foot cells. It was meant to be the end of the line for hardened criminals. Did you say four and a half by ten feet? Yeah. I guess you've got ten feet to pace back and forth, but that's like living in a hallway. Yeah. Ugh, that's gotta feel claustrophobic. (laughs) So it was supposed to be the end of the line for hardened criminals, but Danny Trejo was there in the 60s for drug and gang charges. And we all know Danny Trejo. He's like the poster child for turning your life around. He also did advertisements for getting vaccinated. He got vaccinated on camera. He also became a drug counselor for youth after he got out of prison. But also, Mark Adams was sent there. And Mark Adams shot someone when he was a teenager. And while it's not okay that he killed anybody, he wasn't exactly a hardened criminal. Yeah, I don't get why they were, with the reputation they were trying to create, mixing in these kids with the likes of Charles Manson, Rodney Alcala, and Richard Ramirez. 
in this episode, the warden at one point said that Adams was at San Quentin because of the, quote, physical plant and security it provided. And yeah, I was that like, San Quentin can provide inmates like Mark Adams. Which I wrote that down, too. And I was wondering if you were going to, what you were going to think about that statement. Go ahead. Well, for one thing, I don't know what physical plant means. Same. Um, but also, I I don't know what it is about this teenager that made people feel like he was dangerous enough to need to be housed in the physical plant of San Quentin. Yeah, and the way he put it, San Quentin can provide inmates like Mark Adams. It's like there are some mental gymnastics happening where he's providing a service for Adams. It seemed strange to me. In this Modesto B article I read by writer Nancy Marinin, she pointed out that Charles Manson was there. And she also said, quote, a lesser known convicted mass murderer serving a 600 year prison sentence, end quote, was there. And she didn't name him. 600 is a lot of years. Who is it, Nancy? I've never known anybody who lived that long. I went down a rabbit hole trying to find who that was because I was like, what mass murderer serving 600 years was in San Quentin? And I couldn't find it. Did you try Googling 600-year conviction San Quentin? Yes. (laughs) Yes, I did. (laughs) Okay, I was just checking. Oh, yeah, that was just one of the many rabbit holes that I went down that I always go down while researching articles. Let's spend two hours on this thing that isn't going to be included in the segment, but I really want the answer to. After six months of being incarcerated, Adams earns privileges within the prison, like being able to attend educational classes, self-development programs, and getting a job working as a clerk in the academic department. That Modesto B article by Nancy Marinin, I kind of hate loved it because it was obnoxiously naive but also kind of funny she wrote quote although he was a convicted murderer adams was in the general population section of the prison end quote which just shows she doesn't know how prison housing works but it's like she felt so spicy talking to a real prison official about real prison things (laughs) it's like i just imagine this sort of 50s housewife with perfectly coiffed hair like tell me more (laughs) i think that you are gonna have more of an understanding of how a uh a a jail and thereby a prison system work than the average person like if i read that article i might be like oh are murderers housed separately from general Mm -hmm. population but now i know that they are not because you said so (laughs) well it depends uh, the thing is that solitary and supermax type housing, um, they get full because of like disciplinary situations and new intakes, um, protective custody, and people who are too dangerous or deemed too dangerous to be in general population around other people. So the administration has to kind of pick and choose who they think is going to play well with others. And so while some are hard and fast, like I think Charles Manson was never allowed in general population, others can be a kind of a case-by-case basis. Can you imagine if Charles Manson had managed to put a cult together in jail? That would have been scary. There probably weren't enough teenage girls. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) While in prison, Adams would spend six hours a day in classes, and Nancy wrote, quote, the rest of the time he had to himself to read, watch TV, go to self-help classes, sun in the prison yard, or he could buy junk food from concessions, end quote. And I was like, shut up. You have no idea what you're talking about. Sun in the prison yard? Yeah. He's not on a lawn chair holding a tinfoil under his chin. Presenting prison as a resort vacation, uh, fuck off. (laughs) It's a violent and dehumanizing place. So just be quiet about that nonsense. (laughs) The supervisor of academic programs, Michael McKenzie, told Unsolved Mysteries that Adams was a model prisoner, worked well with people, obeyed rules, and seized any opportunity he got to get out of his cell. He felt sure that Adams took advantage of his job in the academic department, checking schedules and collecting information to leave no stone unturned when the day came. 
And on June 10th, 1986, exactly four years since he entered the prison, Adams got an authorized pass to leave work early and see the dentist. He was last seen heading towards the dentist's office at 2.30 p.m. Now, what if he just really didn't like the dentist? Maybe he just didn't want to go to the dentist, and so he was like, I gotta get out of here. (laughs) Some people have a lot of anxiety about going to the dentist. It's true. Other possibility? Maybe the dentist was a murderer. I like where your head's at, but we will find (laughs) that that's not what happened. (laughs) That would be a really interesting story, though. (laughs) I don't want to commit libel. (laughs) No names. No names. We don't know any names. At 4.15 that day, all inmates returned to their cells for the afternoon count. All but one. By 4.45, Adams was confirmed missing, and San Quentin was locked down. All inmates were returned to their cells, their few privileges revoked. But no trace of Adams or how he escaped could be found. There were three theories. One, Adams acquired civilian clothes and walked out of the prison with visitors, passing through three guarded gates. Now, I was actually curious about this theory, and you could probably actually answer me. Are prisoners allowed access to civilian clothes? No. So he would have had to have somebody help him get those clothes. You would think. He could potentially, if part of his job had him going to areas where inmates' possessions were held, he could potentially get access to civilian clothes, but it would not be easy. If this theory were the case, he would have also needed to get a picture ID, which I guess if he got Mm -hmm. access to, you know, storage, he could have gotten there as well. Or he would have had to have somebody help him. Hmm. Wouldn't he, though? And... Hmm. Hmm. Okay, I think I'm going to learn more (laughs) about this. Uh, But my other question is how is this theory possible at all? How do they feel like it could have been possible for a person to appear out of nowhere? Well, just an extra person leaving the prison. 1,500 people a day could pass through San Quentin. There'd be visitors, deliveries, lawyers coming in and out all day long. I would just think with multiple checkpoints inside the prison... Somebody would have been like, why is a person in civilian clothes walking out of that area? But then maybe it turns out that this isn't the correct theory anyway. I don't know. Why don't you keep telling me about it? I think things were a little more relaxed with visitors. Relaxed? I think things were a little more relaxed with visitors at the time, and it might not have been too difficult for someone to slip into an area where there were civilians, without being too obvious. But I thought that San Quentin provided a physical plant and security. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was also supposed to be inescapable, so... Um, But this possibility that he found some civilian clothes and just walked out led to a new high-tech machine called a finger matrix being installed that in only eight seconds could read your fingerprint. And so they had visitors now having their fingerprints scanned when they entered and exited. And as they exited, if the fingerprint wasn't recognized, they would be detained. The line to get into San Quentin must have been wild. <laughs> just imagining like people lined up around the block just waiting to get into a prison. They have to set up those things, like when you're trying to get through airline security <laughs> or airport. <laughs> They set up some misters and fans for people outside, put in some TVs with John Hammond and some Jurassic Park music. Make Let's you feel go like to Universal you're... Studios. <laughs> the second theory was that Adams climbed the 25-foot prison wall, but this one was just very unlikely because of the multitude of armed guards keeping watch, and they were authorized to shoot to kill any inmate that tried to escape. That seems excessive. I know. And shortly after Adam's successful escape, three inmates tried to escape by climbing the wall and they were immediately apprehended. I thought that was a really interesting coincidence. Mm -hmm. Or if it was a coincidence. Maybe they thought he escaped that way and they decided to give it a go. Maybe that was part of their inspiration. Mm -hmm. But it didn't work. No. The third theory was that 
Adams could have studied the vehicles that passed through the areas where he frequented and found a place to stow away. 225 service vehicles passed through guarded inspection on a daily basis, so it could be possible that he found a secure hiding spot in one of them. There was actually a fourth theory that wasn't on Unsolved Mysteries because it was only briefly a theory, but that was that he was still somewhere in the prison. Initially, officials thought there was a 50-50 chance that he was hiding inside the prison in some unknown cubbyhole, snacking away. That would be hilarious. Yeah. He had bought $100 worth of commissary the day he disappeared. So San Quentin had abandoned staircases that went nowhere. They had false ceilings, cubby holes, underground rooms that were no longer in use. San Quentin is California's oldest and first prison built in 1852. It sounds like it was built to be haunted. (laughs) Probably is. And it was originally intended to hold 50 inmates. (laughs) Obviously, it's been expanded since then. And in 1859, a dungeon was built to hold troublesome inmates. A a dungeon. (laughs) A a genuine dungeon. A dungeon. (laughs) Did it have a rack? Were there shackles on the walls? Was there a pendulum? There's this image in my head that I'm going to tell you about. 100 years later, in 1959, the dungeon was remodeled and renamed the Adjustment Center. Uh, And this is where I appreciate Nancy, because she was like, it was still where troublesome inmates went. Calling it the Adjustment Center makes it creepier to me on a psychological level. Talk about rebranding. And (laughs) that's my image, is just like... They throw up some white paint over the shackles and everything. <laughs> Just like paint them to the wall, toss in some accent rugs. Hey, this was never a dungeon. You're definitely going to feel more mentally sound during your time here. But in 1986, it became the dental office and administration building. Oh, so it's actually where Adams was headed that day, theoretically. Sort of tangential to that theory was that he had been killed in some sort of spat and then his body was hidden somewhere but it had been really hot lately so So they would have smelled it yeah the the decomposition would have alerted someone to the location pretty quickly at the time of the broadcast it had been two years since the escape and there had been no evidence found showing how he did it The director of the education department, Mackenzie, said that Adams was the type to look for a flaw in the security and find a way to exploit it, and that's exactly what he did. That flaw was love. Oh. (laughs) Now it's a romance. (laughs) Unsolved Mysteries aired their segment in 1988, but it wasn't until a January 1993 episode of America's Most Wanted that investigators got a break. And on July 16th, seven years after his escape, 20 FBI agents descended on a small house in Umacao, Puerto Rico, and arrested Mark Adams while he was getting ready for work. He was living under the name Daniel Jacobson and was working as a computer specialist for General Electric, living with his wife, Elsie Diaz-Kelly, and their adopted daughter. He didn't resist arrest, and he said really he knew it was coming. Michael Ridenauer's family was relieved to hear of his capture. His uncle, a Modesto detective named Dick Ridenauer, said that it was like having a 500-pound weight lifted off his back. Dick had been instrumental over the years in keeping interest in the case. He contacted the TV shows about having it on, and he was even the one who took the call from the anonymous tipster because he was volunteering for the America's Most Wanted tip line after the story was featured. And that tip didn't just expose Adam's whereabouts in Puerto Rico. It also exposed a possible accomplice. Elsie Diaz-Kelly, Adam's wife, was 47 years old when they met while she was working as a teacher in San Quentin's education department. Oh. The tipster said that Elsie and Adams had fallen in love during his incarceration. Elsie had reported her ID missing one month before the escape. 
So investigators theorized that she had given him her ID, and all he had to do was really crudely change the name and picture. It's not like they had holographic seals in those days. And he had access to computers, so if he needed to print something out to do it, he could. But how smart is that to report your ID missing before the escape? (laughs) I mean, that might be clever, but also there seems to be a theme of women in jails falling for inmates that I just don't understand. Yeah, same. But Elsie could have fairly easily also given him some civilian clothes so that he could just walk right out. He allegedly, and I will say probably, hid out in her apartment after the escape. Elsie was from Puerto Rico, so she had family there, and I'm thinking she arranged for him to go ahead of her, and she waited a full year before quitting her job and going to Puerto Rico. There is a lot of forethought in that. It's like that marshmallow test. I'm pretty sure she would have waited for the second marshmallow. <laughs> pretty solid plan to avoid suspicion. But of course, now Elsie was under suspicion and investigation for aiding and abetting, although Adams insisted that she did not help with his escape. She didn't help with his escape. They just ran into each other later <laughs> in Puerto Rico yeah. and decided to hook up. For sure. He was charged with unlawful flight to avoid incarceration, and a Puerto Rican judge set his bail at $500,000 while waiting for extradition. His initial sentencing didn't have him eligible for parole until 2007, and I was just kind of like, in 1986, I wouldn't have been able to imagine 2007, partly Mm. because I didn't exist yet. (laughs) But also, just if you think about like being just a kid in the 90s or... And then compare it to what was possible in 2007. If you just think about being someone who's living in the 1900s, even the late 1900s, you don't really think about 2000 as being a reality. It's like, I can't even imagine 2030. Hmm. That's wild to me, 2030. (laughs) So imagining a whole new millennia? Mm -hmm. It's no wonder he peaced out. (laughs) Initially, Adams had said he would waive extradition, but... His fear of being returned to San Quentin wound up being so intense that he changed his mind and was trying to fight it. San Quentin officials, meanwhile, were trying to get him back because they wanted to parade him around and make an example of him. But Adam's friends and fellow church members in Puerto Rico protested his arrest. They gathered outside the San Juan prison where he was being held, chanting, picketing, and holding candlelight vigils. They lobbied politicians to interfere with his extradition. In Puerto Rico, Adams had begun attending a Pentecostal church, and he was respected by the congregation and volunteered as a church counselor. And as part of that role, he helped people stop using substances, he counseled married couples, and he would visit the very Puerto Rican prison where he was now being held to preach. I feel like that is a great example of rehabilitation. Yeah. Like, I don't know what it was that caused him to go down a different path in life. Maybe just the the threat of losing his freedom was enough. I don't know. But maybe our justice system should be more focused on taking somebody who shoots someone at 19. He was 16. When he, he, was, he was 16 when he? Yeah. He okay. wasn't sentenced until three years later. Oh, okay. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So maybe the system should focus on taking somebody who shoots someone at 16 and turns them into somebody who is a respected member of their community. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It could also be that he was 30 years old now and his frontal cortex was fully developed and he could make good decisions. I I don't want to say that a 16-year-old shouldn't face consequences for shooting someone just because their brain hasn't finished developing, Mm -hmm. but they should face restorative consequences. Yeah, I totally agree. 
Adam's sister, Vera June Johnson, and his mother, Anna Mae Crosby, visited him in the Puerto Rican prison. Vera described his cell as a dungeon, just a concrete block with no bed and a hole in the floor for a toilet. They were trying to raise money to get him out of custody, but even in those conditions, Adam said he would rather stay than return to San Quentin. The reason he was so adamant about not returning to San Quentin was that he said he'd been told that he'd be killed there. He told friends and family, if I go back there, I'm a dead man. But in the seven years since he'd been gone, San Quentin had become a level two reception center where prisoners were held until corrections decided where they'd be sent permanently. So if he returned, procedure stated that he would only stay 30 to 60 days before being sent out to his long-term prison. So a spokesman for San Quentin dismissed the concern, saying, nobody knows him and nobody cares about him. But Adam's family... (laughs) Every time as I've been writing this, but Adam's family... And friends didn't think it was right for someone who had turned his life around to be sent back to prison. Like you were saying. I'm not saying that he should be scot-free at this point, but I think they have somewhat of a point here. I've got a little bit of contention with them. But Vera asked the Modesto B, quote, Does it make sense to send a man back to prison who is rehabilitated and doing good for a community and who has been an outstanding citizen? End quote. They knew he wasn't likely to be pardoned, but they did want a retrial, stating that the first was unfair and that he was innocent. And that's my point of contention. Do they have anything to back up their claim that it was unfair? They thought that Hannah did it. Okay. I mean, that is the that is a part of the prisoner's dilemma that it could be whoever lies first mm. gets the reward. Mm-hmm. But it was his gun. Michael Davies didn't have any reason to lie about whose gun it was, about who paid for it. So I think it was probably him and it's just a family in denial, which is fair. I can get why you wouldn't want to accept that your brother and son killed somebody. I just think they're in denial. I do like their first point. Mm -hmm. I can see why there would be suspicion that the other accomplices might have shaped their stories to make themselves look better. Well, everybody is going to do that in every story they ever tell. Yeah, including, I think, Adam saying that he was innocent. (laughs) But he bought the gun. He had possession of the gun. He was probably the one carrying the gun, which would make him the one who shot the gun. (laughs) So. (laughs) Adams refused to speak with the police or the FBI, but he did agree to do an interview with America's Most Wanted because he wanted to apologize to the Ridenauer family. Dick Ridenauer said Adams didn't owe the family anything, but that he did owe the state of California his debt to society. It's like he really believed that sticking a person in a prison for however long was actually a problem solver. And that's why we see such positive statistics about recidivism. In September of 1993, Adams was extradited back to the United States and sent back to San Quentin. He continued to tell family that he feared for his life. As part of a plea deal, Adams pled guilty to escape and was sentenced to 16 months in prison to be served concurrently with the 42 to life that he was already serving. The judge who sentenced him actually took into consideration that he didn't use violence to escape and that while on the run from prison... He was otherwise a law-abiding citizen who contributed to his community. So that is all part of why that's a pretty short sentence for escaping from prison. (laughs) And it's like you were saying, it's just so funny to me that someone who really was trying to do good things out in the world, maybe to make up for the awful thing he did by taking Michael's life, would be locked up because... Yeah, escaping was the wrong thing to do, but it's weird to me to lock someone up who is capable of helping others and who wants to do that. If someone does something wrong, it makes more sense to me, kind of like you were saying, to make them do good instead as reparations. Well, at the very least, I'm hoping that in the continuation of this story, we learn that Adams went on to be able to help people 
Oh, Chandra. Oh, I wish you hadn't just said that. Athena. Six months later, on March 7th, 1994, Mark Adams was shot to death by a San Quentin guard. Son of a nutcracker. The guard, Timothy Scott Reynolds, said Adams had walked into the prison yard and immediately started punching another inmate. He said he thought he saw a knife, so he fired two warning shots into the ground to try to break up the fight. And when that didn't work, he said he aimed a shot at Adams' legs and struck him behind the right ear. That dude should be fired just on the grounds of being a terrible shot. And... No knife was found. Did anyone corroborate his claim? There was nobody else. Actually, you know, I don't know about the inmate. Adams did assault the inmate. Uh, He had to be treated for, like, a split eyebrow. But in terms of the decision-making the guard made... That just doesn't make any sense that he would have gone from doing good in a community to brawling in a prison yard. Yeah, even Dick Ridenour was surprised. He said that he'd never heard of Adams attacking anyone, and that from what he knew, he got along with everybody and never had any trouble. He said, quote, he was a star prisoner, really, end quote. This is Dick Ridenour, whose nephew he killed. So not to start a conspiracy or anything... But one, why was he still there six months later when policy said that he'd only be there 30 to 60 days? Why did he suddenly assault another inmate? And why did a qualified sharpshooter aim for the legs and hit someone in the head? I'm going to go ahead and wildly speculate that maybe this was a conspiracy against him. Maybe as payback for being one... Was he the only person to ever escape or... Some articles said he was, but in, like, the 1800s, 40 people escaped in one day, so... (laughs) One of the 41 people (laughs) in the history of the jail to escape. Yeah, that's a thought that kept going through my mind, too. I don't even think I wanted to put it on paper, but I was like, it was vengeance! (sighs) Adam's family... Gathered outside the prison, shouting at the guards and calling them murderers. They wanted accountability, and they filed a wrongful death lawsuit against the prison, the state, and various individuals, which wound up being a very big deal. It followed a barrage of other lawsuits and investigations into California correctional officers' use of force. It was the only state that allowed correctional officers to shoot prisoners to break up a fight. It was the only state in the United States that allowed that. And between 1989 and 1994, California state prison guards had fatally shot 28 inmates, which was more than three times as many as all the other states combined. Wow. That's a bad look. Yeah. These days, I think that California is doing decent work around prison reform, which is good, Um, like they're releasing people who are in on marijuana charges, but to come from that, woof, (laughs) that's a dark history and still not good enough, California. Keep working on it. I could say that to any state though. Work harder. United States, do better. The wrongful death trial was contentious. The attorney for the family, John Houston Scott, told the jury, how Adams came from a large family and was raised by an abusive stepfather. And as a matter of fact, his stepfather, Robert Crosby, died from an apparent suicide in San Quentin in 1980. Whoa. Maybe that had something to do with why Adams didn't want to be there. (laughs) Could be. Um, Yeah, that was actually another fruitless rabbit hole I went down trying to find more information about that. All I found was that he was a Native American and that... He was in on a parole violation for possession of marijuana with intent to sell. Okay, well, if he was abusive, then poop on him, but that is a lousy reason to have someone in jail. Mm -hmm. That is just an invalid reason. Federally legalize marijuana. It's time. Just do it. (laughs) And let them all out of jail. Here, here. 
Opposing Scott's sympathetic outlook, the state defense Francis Grunder encouraged the jury to think of the real Mark Adams, a robber, murderer, and escapee. At 16 years old. I mean, the escaping was later, but I just don't think that a person can be represented by their 16-year-old actions. By what they did as a 16-year-old. Yeah, I I sure hope that I'm not. (laughs) Yeah, reducing someone down to one action. I mean, it was a horrible thing. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. It was, he did a really terrible thing. It's just... People are more complex than that. They just are. Unfortunately for Grunder, there was one thing in particular that really hurt the state's position. The guard who killed Adams, Reynolds, claimed to feel bad about the shooting, but his ex-girlfriend, Pamela Jean Gallagher, testified that he actually bragged to her about the killing. Gross. It was his little claim to fame having killed the escapee featured on TV. Ex-girlfriend? Yes. Yes, she had actually first told police about it two years earlier when she applied for an emergency protection order against Reynolds for allegedly assaulting her. Oh my goodness. So this caused the jury to really question Reynolds' credibility. And then the state's defense declined to cross-examine Pamela or recall Reynolds to challenge her statement. So I'm like, why wouldn't they? Unless they knew either A, his answer would support her statement, or B, they would be asking their witness to perjure himself by lying on the stand. So I'm asking. So I find the whole thing questionable. I think there might have been some abuse of power going on here. And I'm not alone. We're not the only conspiracy theorists. Well... In 1999, a jury awarded Adams's family a $2.5 million settlement. It was the largest sum ever awarded in a non-class action lawsuit, so just one family suing rather than like a whole group of people, in the history of the prison system. The jury found not only that Reynolds had used excessive force, but that the director of the state prison system and the San Quentin warden were personally responsible for an unconstitutional policy on lethal force. Was the warden still Daniel Vasquez? I don't think so. I didn't write down the name. But jurors felt that non-lethal methods should have been used to break up the fight. What a concept. The state's chief lawyer said that the individuals named by the jury were, quote, unfairly blamed for the violence that inevitably erupts in a prison setting, end quote. And I read that and I was like, excuse me, why is there inevitable violence happening? What do we need to do to stop that violence? Because creating an environment of inevitable violence is not acceptable, It definitely does not sound like it's helping with justice for anybody. No. The corrections department denounced the verdict and said that they only agreed to settle because they wanted to save the taxpayers the cost of a lengthy trial and appeal. Mm -hmm. That's probably also why they didn't recall Reynolds. So they were pissed and they can die mad about it because they caused Adam's death. When Adams was brought back to San Quentin, he was put in the administrative segregation unit, which was typically where troublesome death row inmates were housed. In that unit, he was denied access to mail, visitors, and even a Bible. And since religion had become such a huge part of his life, that was what he wanted more than anything. It was just a Bible. This screams of retaliation. It's just speculation, but... There is a voice screaming retaliation. Yeah. So where does that inevitable violence come from? If you deny a human their basic necessities, what do you think is going to happen? The fact that the jury found liability against two individual officials shook the California state prison system's wardens and other high-ranking officials because it sent a message that it could happen to them, too. Aha, uh-huh, suck it. Yeah. I say quake in the fear of accountability. (laughs) Accountability, bitches. Heaven forbid you be held to just and ethical standards. 
But they said that the verdict could dissuade people from taking warden jobs. And I say good. <laughs> good. If they're afraid of getting in trouble for an injustice that happens under their watch, they probably have no business being in the position in the first place. Only people who are intent on creating an environment where it's not ever going to seem to anybody to be warranted to use excessive or lethal force should be considering taking a position of authority. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that sentence made any sense. I'm not sure if it did either. I got totally lost. I got what you were saying, but I was also <laughs> not really following at the same time. After the verdict, San Quentin did start looking into revising their policy and prohibiting the use of guns to break up fights. And though I couldn't find when exactly the policy changed, this surely played a role. Anna Mae Crosby, Adam's mother, said that the verdict represented a final victory over the system that her son feared. She said she hoped that what happened to her son would never happen to someone else. And she said that she wouldn't receive any of the money. After lawyer fees, the rest of it would go to Elsie. She said, quote, no amount of money will bring back my son, end quote. As far as I can tell, Elsie never faced any legal charges because she evoked the Fifth Amendment and refused to testify. But she knew who he was. True. She was basically aiding in his avoiding capture. I'm not saying Elsie needs to be in jail, though. Yeah, I don't know what kinds of legal proceedings she did face, but nothing nothing too big, as far as I can tell. I'm just getting hung up on a technicality that I really don't need to worry about. I think that she probably gave him her ID and some clothes and hid him in her apartment until she could get him to her family in Puerto Rico. But that's just my opinion. Elsie returned to Puerto Rico, where Adams was also laid to rest. More than 500 people joined his funeral procession, carrying white carnations, a symbol of love. Michael Ridenauer didn't deserve to be a part of this story. He never got the chance to live a life that would have led to hundreds of people carrying carnations in his funeral procession. Mm -hmm. That opportunity was taken from him. Yeah. I hope his family found some solace, some ways to cope with their grief and keep him alive with them. Mark Adams made some choices that got him where he was. And even though he should not have been killed, his death contributed to a reduction in the use of lethal force in California prisons. So I hope that his family found some comfort in that, too. All right, here's my final summation. Here's my, my final thesis. Closing argument. Stop killing people. I think that sounds like a great plan. Let's make a pact right now. <laughs> we are all going to stop killing people. <laughs> Everybody hold hands. Look to your left. Look to your right. The person next to you is promising not to kill people. Now get out a knife. <laughs> what? Cut your palm. It's got to be a blood pact if we want to make it stick. What if somebody gets an infection and dies? Then are are we all going to be complicit? Will we be will we be manslaughterers? <laughs> You've destroyed my plan. <laughs> now I don't know how to fix the world. <laughs> Any final thoughts? Cheers to the good folks fighting for prison reform. Thank you for joining us for another episode of You Solved a Mystery. You can find us on Instagram at You Solved a Mystery. You can email us at YouSolvedAMystery at gmail.com. And you can also tell your friends about us. It's fun and free. And if you leave a review and hopefully a rating on Apple Podcasts, I will try to make it into a poem. I really want this to happen. But until next time, I'm Athena. And I'm Chandra. We kicked Bug out a while ago. But join us next time for You Solved a Mystery. Mystery.